Father, we are truly grateful for uh, your great love for us. We're grateful for your, uh, your compassion, uh, your mercies that are new every morning. Uh, we're grateful for your faithfulness. We're grateful, Father, for uh, the great uh, truth that we will inherit one day the resurrection if we stand firm in the faith, uh, if we become conformed uh, to Christ in the likeness of his death, that we might also be raised uh, like him. So, Father, we pray that you would be in our midst today. We pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us, that you'd help us to think uh, in accordance with, uh, with the truth. And, Father, help us to, uh, uh, to, to come to uh, come to a point where we, uh, we, we surrender everything, Father, to you, and that we, uh, we seek to, above all else, uh, follow you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So this morning, we often talk about this. Um, well, I often read this, but we rarely talk about this, the resurrection of the body. Um, and what I want to do today is, um, this is, uh, we don't typically do topical sermons, but I'm going to do a topical sermon today. Don't stone me. <laughs> but uh, but uh, it's going to be a topical but textual sermon. And it's going to expand on what we looked at last week. Uh, last week we, were, we talked about the Sadducees and we talked about the, the way that they had denied the resurrection. And uh, we, we talked a little, a little bit about it last week, about the way in which the, the resurrection is actually our hope. Uh, not, not a vague notion of heaven, but the resurrection, which is a, a fully embodied uh, an embodied life that we will uh, one day inherit. And so I want, to, I want to talk to you just a little bit about that today. I want to begin in, in Philippians uh, chapter 3 in one of the clearest expressions of, of this idea of the resurrection. And, and by turning here first, <clears throat> chapter 3, verses, um, verses 10 and following, 10 and 11. By turning here first, I want to draw your attention to the way in which Paul, for Paul, the resurrection was the thing toward which he looked. And it was, it was the only thing that, that drove him, that motivated him. It was to actually, in his own self-interest, to obtain the resurrection. One thing we'll notice in the commandments of God is that, is that there is, there's always promise associated with them. And, and God, does not, God does not draw back from giving us promises in exchange for our obedience. Okay? So this is, it's not something that we should feel like we never need to feel like we have any kind of self-interest because we do have self-interest in this. And in fact, the promises of God are for our benefit and they are to be sought after because they benefit us, right? Not just because we have the selfless interest in, um, in somehow pleasing God because, because we should, right? So what's the alternative to having incentive? Just doing it because you should? Well, I, I, I don't think that's exactly right. Now, listen to uh, Paul in chapter three. Uh, verses 10 and 11. He says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain, attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is what he is after. Not that I have already obtained this 
or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. What? The resurrection. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to that which lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything, you, you think otherwise, God will, re will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. There it is, clear as day. What he presses on toward is the resurrection. And because of our, our general lack of discussion of the resurrection, I want to, I, I want to discuss this uh, further. We, uh, last week when we looked at the resurrection, uh, we, I, I went into just a little bit of depth on it, but I want, to, I want to actually bring it around and say, look, we have, there's some practical implications for, uh, for this idea of the resurrection. As we will see, the link between the resurrection, that future bodily state of God's people, the link between that and our current activities and behavior are direct or is direct. It is a, there is a direct link between the resurrection and our current activities and behavior and thought, should add. It is this link, long missing in Christian thought, that empowers our lives and imbues our lives with meaning. And it secures our role or roles within the coming age, giving a foundation to our behavioral decisions and this is this is something that that we uh, we don't talk about it much but what is it that drives our decisions each day for Paul it was the resurrection now what I do not mean is because you will one day go to heaven you should just get your act together right and do right because you're going to go to heaven one day and and God God wants to reward you for for being a good boy or go, good girl that's not what I mean one of the spiritual disciplines that we as servants of Christ must practice and possess is the discipline of thinking eschatologically. I know that's a big word, but eschatologically simply means thinking in relation to the coming age, the resurrection, thinking in accordance with the age to come. Without it, we are little more than Epicureans, biding our time in an otherwise meaningless drudgery, saying, and you've probably heard this, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. This is the common Epicurean uh, phrase that basically encapsulates what they believe. That yes, there may have been the, the gods up here and the humans down here, but the gods up here didn't really care much about what's going on down here, and so we just eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. No meaning whatsoever. And I argue that within, the, within Western Christianity today, we have essentially become spiritual Epicureans, where we go about our existence with little thought given to the way in which the age to come is impacted by our living in the present. We go about our existence giving little thought to the way in which the age to come, eternal life, it's called, is impacted by our living in the present. Furthermore, without this type of thinking 
and the link between, between thinking and behavior, we tend to associate our behavior with some kind of work. Okay, so we tend to say that we, we want to avoid any suggestion that our human activities in Christ have any significance for the life to come, that somehow our human action equals works. I would argue that this is not the way that we should think about it. This is, this is essentially Epicureanism. It's like saying, well, we just, we just float around and, and we do what we do. We, have these, these, we try to have pure motivations in what we do, but we do them and we don't want to talk about the way in which they impact anything in the age to come. That our ethics, our Christian behavior, must be un, untainted with anything con, that might be considered a work. Somehow we should, we should just be like Jesus because, we, well, we should want to be like him. We should love him and therefore want to do what is right. And that's it. This is true. It, it's not that, that what I'm saying is un, that, that what has typically been said is untrue. It's just incomplete. This type of thinking leaves us very little foundation and motivation for our actions. And as we, as we saw in Philippians, what motivated Paul was resurrection, right? Not just this idea that we should, we should love Jesus and, and do what he says. This is true. It's not that that's untrue. It's that the resurrection was the driving force behind his, his activity. And I can show you passage after passage where that's the case, and we're going to look at some. <clears throat> I say this. We should learn to think and to live eschatologically with a view to the resurrection, if we want to recover a substantial foundation for Christian ethics and Christian behavior. These are inextricably linked. Now, what I don't mean, and this is often uh, something else that we hear, is that we should live as though the Lord could return at any time, which is also true, but not exactly what, what uh, Paul is getting at. Uh, the resurrection... The resurrection is going to break in fully at his coming. Okay, that's when it is going to break in at his coming. And so it is true that we should live as though he could return at any time. Okay, this is, this is true. It's biblical. We should live this way. But that is not exactly our motivation for behavior. The return of Christ is not a manipulative tool by which we shame people into good behavior like dad's going to come home and catch us in the act, right, if we're, if we're not behaving correctly. No, that is not it. We must train ourselves to think about the way that the age to come, the resurrection, has, number one, broken into this age, right? So the age to come, and I'm going to go back through this. This is something that we looked at last week. The age to come, the eternal life, Jesus calls it, has broken into this age. And in the future, it will break in in its fullness at his return. Number three, our lives in Christ matter because of this very thing. You are preparing for what Paul calls the revealing of the sons of God. Romans 8, 19. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. This is what, in Romans chapter 8, he's, he's working toward this. The creation itself is longing for the resurrection from the dead. Why? 
because the creation was subjected to futility because of man. Because of man and the unveiling, the revealing of the sons of God, which, is, which will happen at the resurrection. That's what the creation itself is longing for because it too will be put right when the sons of God are revealed. Romans 8, 19. Look at this in, in Romans 8. It is these first and three parts that I want to discuss today briefly. Number one, the resurrection has broken into this world and our lives matter as a result. The present is filled with meaningful motivation as a result of the promise of resurrection. And the resurrection has broken into this present world. Galatians 1, chapters, uh, 1 verses 3 through 5. The Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We have been delivered out of this present evil age and are now living alongside it, but not in it. Think about this. If we have been delivered out of this present evil age, where are we now living? We're living in the age to come. So first, the new age, eternal life, otherwise called the kingdom of God, as we'll see in the Gospels, has broken into the present in the person of Jesus and in those who possess the spirit of God. We must, we must remember that in the New Testament, we will find a two-age eschatology. The future res resurrection, the future res resurrection which every Jew believed in in the first century is out there in the future. Everyone is going to be raised, according to Daniel chapter 12, which we'll read in a moment. Everyone will be raised, raised, the wicked will be raised to eternal damnation, and the righteous will be raised to eternal life. It says it there, to life, to the age, right? Eternal life. The future resurrection, this is the point. This is, this is what Jesus has done to the future resurrection. The future resurrection has been born with the resurrection of Jesus. This is what we saw in Mark chapter 9, verse 1, the kingdom of God coming with power. It is the breaking in of the resurrection that was only going to be in, uh, way out there in the future. It broke into the present in the person of Jesus. Let's also have a look at John, John chapter 11 when he says, I am the resurrection and the life, the one who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live, and the one who believes in me will never die. What he is saying is that if you believe in me, you are in advance in the resurrection. You're in the life of the age to come already. The Jews of Jesus' day knew that the resurrection would come, that that time when God would raise everyone and judge them. Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, there's our phrase, 
Now, what does Jesus say about everlasting life? The one who believes in me will have everlasting life, right? You can have it now by faith in Christ. Some will arise to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, note here the echoes of Mark uh, 13, 19 and Matthew 24, 21, which are speaking of the coming destruction of the temple. We're going to come to a passage in, in, in Mark uh, pretty soon. We're almost, almost finished with Mark chapter 12. We'll be looking at Mark chapter 13, and it is talking about the time when the temple is going to be destroyed. And one thing that Check this out. Uh, you'll have a few weeks to, to get prepared on this. The end of the present evil age, or the beginning of the end of the present evil age, has begun, and it is signaled by the destruction of the temple. This is what he's getting at, and Matthew makes this especially uh, clear. He says, when will, the si when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming? And of the end of the age, that's what he asked. The end of the age there, he's talking about the end of this present evil age and the inauguration of the new age. And he associates that with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Okay, and we can hear echoes of this uh, in, he says, there will be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. This is echoed in Matthew chapter 24 and, and also in Mark 13. Uh, this will be that, that time of, of great, um, the time of Jacob's trouble. Right, so uh, note those echoes, we're going to come to that. No one ever dreamed that the resurrection that was supposed to be at the end of the age would appear in advance through the action of God's king. No one ever dreamed that the resurrection that would occur at the end has now shown up in a person. The resurrection is at once coming, but it is also here. There is an already not yet idea associated with it. Jesus has modified the idea of the resurrection happening out there in the future to say that now it has arrived in me. The new age is being ushered in. Okay? Now, this is, uh, this is part of what has been neglected. So the, there are two aspects to it. There's what has already occurred, which is what we're going to discuss more about today. Um, and then there is that, that resurrection in the future. And that is, what Paul, that is what Paul is looking at in Philippians 3 when he says, I'm going to, I want to obtain unto the resurrection of the dead. That's the future of it. But he says that he might know the power of his resurrection in the present. That's what we must seek. Jesus has modified the idea of resurrection. The age to come is still the age to come, and this is where the, the theoretical runs into the practical. We have jobs to do in the age to come that are to begin here. It has become a cliche that God has a plan for your life, but this may be more true than you ever imagined. Because this world is your training ground on the way to your responsibilities in the age to come. The sufferings of this present time 
are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us, Paul says in Romans 8. What is this glory? But the responsibility and beauty associated with the ruling of God's creation in the age to come. And it is God's people who will share in this glory and rule. God himself has glory by virtue of his wise rule. Think about Isaiah 6, where the glory of God fills the whole earth because he is on his throne and he's ruling over it, bringing to pass his promises through the exile of Israel and its announcement through Isaiah the prophet. Consider Psalm 8, and this is extremely important when we discuss the, uh, what Jesus has, has brought about by his death and resurrection. Psalm 8 says, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little lower than God. Now check this, the, the, the versions often say the angels or, or something other, but it's Elohim, it's God. You've made him a little lower than God, and you crowned him with glory and honor. You hear that? You crowned him. Who receives a crown? Royalty receives a crown. And what he has done is done this to mankind. He has crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him, and this is what the glory and honor means. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and also the, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Who is he speaking of here? Is he speaking of Jesus, or is he speaking of mankind? Yes, he is speaking of Jesus, and he is speaking of mankind, because in Jesus we inherit. The meek shall inherit the earth, right? In him we shall inherit. It sounds a lot like Adam, a lot like mankind. It also sounds a lot like Jesus, and it is. The idea is this, and We'll see this, uh, if you have a chance, uh, go listen to what, uh, what I will say about uh, Genesis, uh, Genesis 2 and 3 uh, on the website. The idea is this, and, and we're going to look at, we look at the way this plays out in Genesis 2 and 3. God has determined from the beginning to set mankind over his creation. God has determined from the beginning to set mankind over his creation and to rule through mankind, to rule through mankind. What is it about the image of God? What is the image of God in Genesis chapter 1? The image of God is to rule. Let us make man in our image, and the next sentence, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves, and over the earth. That's what it means to have the image of God. And God has determined from the very beginning to set mankind over his world, to rule. This has come to pass, and this is the important part. This has come to pass in some sense. It is coming to pass and will come to pass for those who are in Christ Jesus. The new humanity is wrapped up in Jesus, and we are wrapped up in him. God has determined to reveal his own glory, the divine rule in and through us who are in Christ. This glory is reflected from the divine rule that God wants to accomplish through his son and through you.
who are in his son. Why don't we see it when we look around? Why don't we see it? There's always that practical question. Why don't we see what God is doing? We aren't looking mostly. Maybe we aren't involved. Maybe we will be like those whose works are wood, hay, and stubble that will not endure the burning judgment of God. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe we're not really concerned to see the resurrection played out in our own lives. Paul speaks of it this way. He is thinking, always thinking eschatologically in light of the resurrection. He says, according to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than that which, that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day, and this is that's key, for the day will show it. What's that day? This is the day of the revelation of Jesus Christ, the day of the revealing of the sons of God. This is the resurrection. The day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. You hear that? You will receive a reward if your work endures. If any man's work is burned up, he himself will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. It's not going to be uh, nice and painless. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Why else don't we see the resurrection within our lives in the world? We aren't aware that it is God's will for us to rule wisely by his grace within our respected domains. God has given you a domain over which you rule. And this is men, women, this is you have a domain. Right? Mankind is made in the image of God, male and female. You have a domain over which you have been put, and he expects you and me to rule wisely over it. This is why we often fail to see it, because we are not aware that it is God's will for us to rule wisely within our respective domains. We haven't realized that it is God's will for us. We have been sidetracked into believing that we're just waiting on the Lord to take us home, which means leaving earth and going to heaven. We have been sidetracked into thinking that rather than comprehending the continuity between this life and the age to come where God's righteousness, his covenant faithfulness is fully realized and where, where God becomes all in all and we rule with the Messiah. We think it's supposed to look, it's another reason we often miss it, because we don't understand what the wise rule of God looks like in this world. We think it's supposed to look like the rulers of this age. We too see through fleshly eyes, like Jesus' contemporaries before his resurrection. They thought he was going to go to Jerusalem, draw up an army, and kill those wicked rebels, right? Kill the wicked nations. That's not what he meant by ruling over the world. What did he mean? He meant becoming a servant, giving his life. He meant those types of things. To the extent, and this, this is what 
we want to think about this in relation to ourselves, but also those who have gone before us. To the extent that your loved ones and mine have embodied God's, God's wisdom and rule, they and we will be given responsibilities in the new creation, an embodied existence in the new world. As we closed last week, I read a passage from Matthew relating to those who have lived well as servants of Jesus. What did I say? They will, uh, what, what did Jesus say? They will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Now, this is kind of odd if there's nothing to do in heaven, right? There's nothing to do. And so we often think of this idea of heaven as just, you know, playing our harps on a cloud. Some, no, it's not that. This is, this is a newly redone world, right? When, when the resurrection comes, this world will be set right and lifted from its curse. It will be a fruitful place that yields its fruit. When we have been faithful over a little, we will be set over much. Now, let's get a little more practical. What does it look like to rule through Jesus Christ, as Paul says in Romans 5.17? There's, there's always the, the, the potential for misunderstanding when we use language that looks different in this world than it looks in the kingdom of God. The first one is this. Enduring suffering is primary in ruling well. Matthew 5.10. And I'm going I'm to look at, at quite a few passages from the Sermon on the Mount. And I'll come back and explain why, why I chose those and why it's important to see the Sermon on the Mount as eschatological. Matthew 5.10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men insult you and persecute you and falsely say all, things of, all, all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for your reward in heaven is great. Now, I want to say, in heaven, it's kept there, just like in Peter. That's where your inheritance is kept, your reward is kept there for deliverance on the last day. For your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Here reward is tied to enduring persecution and rejoicing in it. It is laid up in heaven to be yours on the last day in the resurrection. Loving enemies, Matthew 5:46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Here we have love as loving of enemies as an essential part of ruling, right? This is what we are to do as royalty. Doing acts of righteousness for the glory of God. Beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. If we print about and posture about what we are doing and why, there's no reward in the age to come. Giving to the needy in secret, not to be praised by others. Matthew 6, 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward. 
But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Praying as you would talk, in secret and without meaningless repetition. Going the extra mile. Receiving God's people, and on and on. That this is what it means to be royal. This is what it means to rule in the age to come. Note that I've taken these examples from the Sermon on the Mount. And that's because this sermon is an eschatological sermon designed to inculcate living in the new age in anticipation of the age to come. It is designed to make us think about what life will be like in the resurrection and to put that into practice ahead of time. This is what it means to be kingdom people. To those who are going to inhabit the kingdom of God, we must put these practices into, into practice before the time arrives. To describe the kind of people, the kind of new humanity Jesus would create by his resurrection and spirit. Those who, and this is very important, those who do the opposite of these show that they are still living in this present age. They're still operating as the old man. They still haven't crucified the old man, putting him to death. They haven't put on the new man who is being renewed according to the image of the one who created him, Colossians 3. We are not to be, we are, we are to put off the old man, which accords with this present evil age, and we are to put on the new man. Paul talks about it as a set of clothing that accompanies the age to come. There's a set of clothing that you can put on if you want to live in this world, and you'll look just like it. And there's a set of clothing that you'll put on if you want to live in the age to come, and you will stick out here. We are to put on the new man. We are to become new creatures. To summarize and, and conclude, the resurrection that was to be only in the future has now broken into our world in the person of Christ through his death and resurrection. And it is to break into this world further through you putting on the death and resurrection of Christ. We who have trusted in Christ are living in the resurrection ahead of time by the Spirit of Christ. Our lives and what we do matter now because of this very thing. We are already living in the new world in some sense, and we are building our houses, so to speak, that we will inhabit in their fullness. The question we must always ask ourselves in relation to our uh, motivations and behavior, if the resurrection has dawned, who are we to be? If the new age has been launched and we are already in that new age, Jesus' people must learn how to live in the new age that has been inaugurated by his death and resurrection. We must not, as Paul says in, in Romans chapter 12, allow this present age to squeeze us into its mold because we are to be living in the age to come. Our mindset 
and behavior must be brought into alignment with the not yet of that age that will fully and finally be brought about at the resurrection.